Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is sponsored in part by 4Athletics Apparel. 4Athletics has been an awesome sponsor. Not only has their sponsorship helped in funding our work, but it's been really cool to see how all of you have gotten behind the guys at 4Athletics and have now allowed them to create even more awesome athletic apparel. I just got one of their new t-shirts made out of their new summer weight. It has the same soft touch and high quality feel as their other shirts, but in a lighter weight that's more breathable for summertime. And this week, 4Athletics is highlighting their new sole tank top. It's a loose-fitting tank top with a dropped hem designed for comfort that can be worn to the gym or out to dinner with a pair of jeans. And Becky is really digging hers. The guys at 4Athletics just keep knocking it out of the park with new products, and it's all because of the support from you, the listeners. Like I've told you many times before, 4Athletics has a crowdfunding model. When you go on their website, 4Athletics.com, and select a model, you'll see the track bar at the bottom. That tells you what percent funded that item is. As soon as the product is funded, they stitch out the apparel and they ship it out. And it's the highest quality athletic apparel you've probably ever worn, and you won't believe the price point. And for you Truth and Justice listeners, that price point is even lower. If you go to 4Athletics.com and use my promo code TRUTH, 4Athletics is giving 15% off of your entire purchase. That's right, 15% off of their already low prices for their incredibly high-quality fitness apparel. So go get your new fitness gear today by going to 4Athletics.com and use my promo code TRUTH for 15% off. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to thank you all for tuning in today. And judging by the response on social media, you all were just as disturbed with last week's episode as I was. When we track the investigation into Edward Eight's case, there's just no other way to feel besides frustrated. And I can promise you that the information that I'm going to give you today is going to leave you even more frustrated. So prepare yourself. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a question. A few weeks ago when I launched our Patreon page, I told you that one of the purposes for that was that I wanted to add staff so we can expand what we're doing here. And now what I want to know is would you be interested in a second episode per week of Truth and Justice? My plan is to add a full-time staff member that can help with the administrative duties, answering emails, help with research, do some of the editing, and handle a lot of the business dealings with the show. But one of the reasons that I wanted to get someone in here full-time is because I want to produce a second episode of the week where I can get listener feedback. The plan would be that on Sundays, I would still drop the normal main episode that you're all used to hearing. But then on Fridays, I would drop a second episode, kind of an addendum, that would be a place for listeners to ask questions and give their thoughts. We would do this through email and phone calls, so that second episode would be just me answering questions from you. 
I threw this out the other day on social media, and a couple of people were concerned that it would take up too much of my time. But that's why I want to hire that second person. Having someone else in the office will help free up some of my time, and the second episode will only take the hour that it takes me to answer the questions. Everything else would be handled by the new employee. So please let me know either on Twitter or on Facebook or send me an email if you would be interested in a second episode per week. And again, if you want to help contribute to that cause, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice or just go to our homepage and click the link. And that's a place where if you want to, you can pledge a monthly donation. The donations can go anywhere from $1 up as high as you want them to go. For those of you that have already gone on to Patreon and pledged, I want to thank you so much for your support. You were a big part of the reason why we're in a position to make this happen. But that's enough business talk for now. I want to move on to the content of today's episode. In today's episode, I first want to introduce you to Ed's brother, Kelvin Ates. Kelvin went through hell during Ed's trial, and we're going to walk through that in the first segment of today's show. And in the second segment, we're going to break down the defense's closing argument and hopefully answer some of the questions that a lot of you have had as to how in the world Ed Aids ended up getting convicted of this murder. Well, let's start out with Kelvin Aids. How you doing today, Mr. Ruff? This is Kelvin Aids. This is Ed's brother. I just wanted to say and tell you thank you again so much. I don't know if anyone's ever told you, but I just want to say thank you so much for helping my brother out in his case and all that you're doing. You just don't know how much of a lifesaver you really are. And I wish you nothing but the best of luck with all the other cases. And I hope that you and your team alone could overturn all this corrupt justice that's going on in East Texas and just basically all over the United States. I just want to say thank you again, man. You have a very blessed day. Bye. I spoke with Kelvin Aids for the first time about three days ago. Kelvin had went with his mother to visit Ed in prison, and Ed was telling him about what we're doing. When we spoke on the phone, Kelvin hadn't heard the podcast at all, and he didn't quite understand exactly what we do. He left me the voicemail that you just heard yesterday after listening to one of the episodes for the first time. I think that it's important for us to realize that the work that we're doing is really having an impact on people. Kelvin, just like Ed and his mother and everyone else that loves him, had given up on his case. They'd given up on the hope that Ed's not going to die in that prison. They had just accepted it. But now, for the first time, Ed, his mother, his brother, his wife, his children, finally have hope and all of them are willing to help in any way they can to right this wrongful conviction. And in this first segment today, I want to explain Kevin's involvement in the trial. The extent of Kevin's testimony was minimal. He didn't know a whole lot at all. Yet he played a big part in the trial. He appeared in court several times, and there were multiple bench conferences held regarding Kelvin Aids. And the transcripts for all of that is up on the website. On the night Elnora's body was found, Kelvin wrote out a brief statement. His statement basically said that the night before, the night that the murder occurred, that he and Ed had talked, that he went into the house, and Ed left. And then he said the night the body was found, he and his brother saw the emergency lights down at Elnora's trailer, they ran up to the door, looked in, saw Elnora's body, and a deputy told them to get off the porch and not to go in. That's it. 
you wouldn't think that his testimony would have much impact on the trial at all. But Kelvin wasn't called by the defense. He was actually called as a witness by the prosecution. And the prosecution's reason for calling Kelvin Eights had everything to do with the scrapings that were taken off of Ed's shoe. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But before we get there, I want to talk to you about everything that Kelvin went through during his brother's trial. To begin with, the state wanted to call Kelvin as a witness, and Kelvin had no interest in testifying for them. So in September of 1997, about a year before the trial, David Dobbs sent his assistant, Camilla Cromer, over to Marshall, Texas, which is about 70 miles away from Tyler. That's where Kelvin was living at the time, and he was working as the manager at Burger King. Miss Cromer and an investigator for the prosecution paid Kelvin a visit at work. This is what Kelvin had to say about that experience. Anyway, they came to Marshall to subpoena me is what they did. They came to Burger King. Okay. It was David Dobbs' assistant, some woman. Camilla Cromer? I guess. Yeah. And it was, and it was some uh, private investigator. He had snow white hair. That's all I can remember. The investigator did? Yeah. Okay. They came with her. They came up to the front counter. And the young lady working the front counter, she come back and got me. She said, they want the, the manager to take the order. I said, okay. So I went back up to the front. When I went back up to the front, I took the order and everything. And then the, uh, the white-haired guy had some papers, but he had them turned upside down. Uh-huh. He slid them across the counter, and he handed them to me. I said, what's this? He said, you've just been served. Then I turned it over. That's when I seen it was a subpoena. Okay. And then they said, well, you mind if we talk to you? I said, no. I said, hold on a minute. So... I went back to the manager's desk. I got the minute tape recorder. I brought it out to the front counter where they were sitting at. Mm-hmm. And I asked them if I taped the conversation. They said no. And I taped the whole conversation between us. So what went on in that conversation? They was trying to get me to change my statement. It sounded like from the trial transcripts that they were trying to get you to rewrite your written statement. Is that what they were trying to get you to do? Yeah. That's what they were trying to do. What did they want you to change it to? They wanted me to put times in there. And I told them I couldn't give them no times because I, I didn't give them no times in the first written statement. So how can I give you times in the second one? Right, five years later or four years later, whatever it was. Yeah, they were trying to get me to change my written statement. It was this interaction that caused Kelvin all of his problems during the trial. Kelvin says that he did tape this conversation, and he had a recording of Camilla Cromer trying to get him to change his written statement. The day before the trial began, Kelvin met with David Dobbs in his office and Dobbs asked for a copy of the tape, but Kelvin refused to give it to him. He did give a copy of the tape, or so he thought, to his brother to give the defense attorneys. So jump to a couple days later at the trial. All of the witnesses in Ed's trial had been sequestered. They were not allowed in the courtroom during the trial, they were not allowed to talk about their testimony with anyone, and they were not supposed to know anything about what was happening in there. But the first thing that you'll see in the trial transcripts on the website is David Dobbs asking for a bench conference to speak to the judge about the fact that a witness, John Barron, who was the EMT on the scene that night, told him that he had witnessed Kelvin Aids standing up and holding his ear up to the door to try to listen to what was happening in the trial. This was a violation of the witness rule, so the judge ordered a hearing right then and there. First, they let John Barron come in and give his version of events. He says that he witnessed Kelvin Aids standing against the door with his ear to it, and that when Kelvin saw him, he backed away from the door. Mr. Barron kept walking, and he says that when he came back, Kelvin had his ear up to the door again. Now, the strange thing here is that the defense wasn't arguing about this. All three, the judge, David Dobbs, 
and Ed's attorneys were all saying that they should incarcerate Kelvin Aids throughout the duration of the trial. There was a strange conversation where all three of them are trying to figure out which rule they could hold him under. Eventually, Kelvin finally says, is anybody going to ask me what happened? So the judge allows him to speak, and Kelvin says that he had gotten up and moved because he was sitting right across from the women's restroom. So he had stood up and moved into the hallway. He says that several of the witnesses had done the same thing, gotten up to move around and stood in that hallway by the door. But Judge Gomer just disregarded his testimony. He listened to it and just said, okay, well, I find that you violated the witness rule. So then during the conversation, Dobbs decided that he's going to call Kelvin next, which seemed as though they were doing that so that he wouldn't have to be incarcerated. There was a concern that if he left, he wasn't going to come back. So Dobbs puts him on the stand. Kelvin testifies. It just takes a couple of minutes. But then they have another discussion to try to decide if they can still hold Kelvin incarcerated. And everything seems to revolve around this tape. Ed's attorneys first say that when Kelvin gave them the tape, that they didn't have a player to play it on. Then throughout the hearing, they're trying to get it to play in another player. They eventually say that they played the tape that he gave them, and it was blank. Now, this was a micro-cassette tape, so these come in a package, if you can imagine, that looks like a normal cassette package, but there's four small tapes inside. So the assumption is that maybe Kelvin gave them the wrong tape. There continues to be more discussion about the missing tape, and Judge Gomer eventually decides that he is going to keep Kelvin incarcerated because he's still on recall as a witness, but he orders a deputy or an officer of the court to go with Kelvin all the way back to Marshall to look in his house to see if they can find the tape. They go to his house, they look through his truck, they look through his house, they don't find the tape. They bring Kelvin back and put him back in jail. Altogether, he ended up spending three days in the Smith County Jail. And that was all due to the fact that one person said that they saw him holding his ear up to the door. But the real reason that was clear from the bench conference was that both sides were concerned that he wouldn't come back and testify later. When he gets back, there are several more bench conferences. Judge Gomert is extremely irritated with Ed's attorneys. First, they said they had the tape. Then they said they hadn't listened to it. Then they tried to listen to it. Then they said that Ed had spilled water on the tape player and the tape player didn't work. Then they came back and said they did listen to it and it was blank. And they had a case that Kelvin had given them that had two more tapes in it. So they had two tapes in there that were supposedly blank, the tape that he had given Ed's attorneys that was supposedly blank, and the fourth tape was missing. Dobbs is making a big deal about this because Ed's attorneys had basically accused this assistant prosecutor of prosecutorial misconduct and tampering with a witness. Ultimately, they never did find that tape, at least not that we're aware of. Kelvin actually believes that somebody from the sheriff's department or the prosecutor's office may have went back to his house and looked for the tape again. And he believes this because he said when he got checked out of the jail three days later, when they gave him his property back, they didn't give him his keys back. They said that they had lost them. He ended up having to walk out of the courthouse and call his wife to come pick him up all the way from Marshall because he had no keys. But again, this tape still remains a big mystery, and it caused all kinds of confusion throughout the duration of the trial. Ultimately, Camilla Cromer came up to testify, and she said that she never asked him to change his testimony. So it was Kelvin's word against hers, and that was the end of that. But the more important question is, why did the prosecution want to call Kelvin Aids as a witness and not the defense? Well, let's go through Kelvin's statement and recollection of the events to begin with. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When I talked to Kelvin the other night, I asked him to walk me through the events the night of the murder, the night before Elnora's body was found. He told me the exact same story that Ed told me. That after he had left Johnny Pryor's house, he went back up to his grandmother's house and stood outside and had a cigarette and was talking to Kelvin. Ed tells me that he told Kelvin that he was going to leave. Kelvin went inside. Ed got into his grandmother's car and he went to Monica's apartment. And this was Kelvin's recollection of those events. But I went over here and went over in the house. He told me he was going to leave. Uh huh. He was doing that on occasion, you know, with a girlfriend, couple kids and stuff like that. So he so he told you before you went back in the house that that he was going to leave. Yeah. This may not seem all that significant, but I do think that it matters. Everything about Ed's story checks out except for the fact of how he got to Monica's apartment. And in order to believe the prosecution's theory of the case, you'd have to believe that right then, I mean, this is about 9.30 at night, Ed's planning on going somewhere, he tells his brother that he's leaving, but then instead walks back down the hill and goes into Elnora's trailer and ends up killing her. In order for their theory to fit, this would almost have to be premeditation. He would have had to gone there planning to kill her. If he was just going down there for an innocuous reason, he would have just told his brother he was going down to Elnora's to talk to her about something. But he told his brother he was leaving, and then according to the state's theory, instead of leaving, he went down to her trailer with no intention to go anywhere else. And I believe Kelvin when he tells me this. And the reason for that is that it was obvious from talking to Kelvin that he was not going to lie to help his brother. He was going to tell the truth, at least to the best of his memory. There were several questions that I asked him that he said he just couldn't remember and he didn't want to say anything that was incorrect. But the things that he did remember, he told the story today the same way that he told it back in 1993. For example, Ed said, and Monica also stated, that while Ed was at Monica's apartment, that he called his brother. And this is what Kelvin had to say about that call. Did you have to let him back in the house that night? Yeah, he called me, I'm going to say between 11 and 12. I can't give an exact time. I'm going to say between 11 and 12 that night. And he asked me would I uh, unlock the screen door to let him in. And I told him I would. I woke up, I unlocked the screen door. And I turned the TV on and I went back to sleep. On, I, I went lay down, lay down on the couch and I wound up going to sleep. Okay, he and he called you before he came? Because what, your, your grandma locked the door when she goes to bed? Yeah, she locked the screen door. So just like Ed and Monica, Kelvin remembers Ed calling him and asking him to unlock the door, and then he ended up calling Monica back, and they talked on the phone for a little while late that night. But this is the part of Kelvin's statement that the prosecution wanted to use at trial. Ed testified, and still tells me today, that when they went up to the porch, that he was standing in front of Kelvin, the door was open, they opened the screen door, Ed said that he took one step in, looked to his left, and could see about half of Elnora's body there. Someone yelled at them to get off the porch and get out of the trailer. He stepped back out, and they got down and away from the house. 
But Kelvin's statement is very different from that. Kelvin states that he was in front of Ed. He agrees that the door was open and that they only had to open the screen door. And he says that he was standing in front of Ed and he looked in and saw Elnora's body and they heard the person yelling and they got off the porch. And he explicitly says that they never stepped foot inside the trailer, that they didn't even stick their head in the door. Now, why does that matter? Well, it all has to do with that scraping off of Ed's shoe. Ed's attorney's strategy for his defense was to explain away the feces on his shoe. And their plan for doing that is that maybe he picked it up when he stepped in the trailer that night. So the prosecution wanted to use Kelvin to try to convince the jury that Ed never did step in the trailer that night, and therefore the only way he could have gotten the feces on his shoe was when he was in there the night before murdering Elnora. Both Kelvin and Ed stick to their story to this day. Kelvin says he was in the front and they didn't go in. Ed says he was in the front. And I don't believe that either one of them are lying. I believe that both of them honestly remember the events in the way that they're telling me. But after talking to both of them, I tend to believe that Ed's version of events is the correct one. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, if you look at the crime scene photos, you'll see that Elnor's body is laying right next to the couch. The couch is to the left of the door. The wooden door to the trailer opens inward to the left. So it can't open all the way so it's flush with the wall because it would hit the couch when it opened, meaning that that door would obstruct their vision into the trailer. Between the door and the couch, I don't believe you would be able to see Elnor's body without stepping in or at least sticking your head way in. I think at the very most you may have been able to see Elnora's foot. But Ed described that incident in specific detail for me. And one thing that I caught is that he told me he remembered stepping up into the trailer. So I went back and looked at the crime scene photos, and sure enough, the deck, or the front porch, is about six inches below the threshold of the door. So you would indeed actually have to take a step up to get into the trailer. You couldn't accidentally slide your foot in if you're trying to look around that door. You would have had to have made a step up, and that's the way that Ed remembers it. So because of the obstruction of the door and the couch, and the fact that Ed specifically remembers stepping up into the trailer, leads me to believe that Ed's memory of those events is probably more accurate. But the bottom line is that it never should have mattered. Ed's attorney's strategy was to explain away the human feces on his shoe. The problem is that we don't even know if that actually was human feces on his shoe. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 you need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 
After reviewing all of these transcripts, it's occurred to me that the reason that Edward Eights was convicted, and he should never have been convicted, has a lot to do with the fact that his trial attorneys missed a lot of things and their overall strategy was flawed. Let's first try to piece together what the state's actual theory of the case is based on things that we absolutely know. So the state went to this jury with a theory of the case that says Ed was standing up in his front yard talking to his brother, having a cigarette. He told his brother that he was leaving. His brother then goes inside. Ed walks down to the trailer. Elnora lets him in, apparently wearing nothing but a robe, bra, and underwear. They sit down and they chat for a while. During that time, Kubia Jackson calls and says, right in front of Ed, I'm sitting here talking to Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson. And at some point, Ed uses the guest bathroom where he puts a watermelon Jolly Rancher in his mouth. And by the way, I want to thank all of you who noticed that I mucked up Jolly Rancher rapper in last week's episode. I can't believe there haven't been any memes created for that yet. But in any case, he uses the bathroom, leaves the seat up, puts a Jolly Rancher wrapper in the trash can. At some point, he and Elnora end up in the bedroom. Now, this is just minutes after he just heard Elnora tell someone that he was sitting there. Somehow, Elnora gets naked. Someone else's semen ends up on the bed. They have this major struggle where possibly she's attempted to be strangled. He chases her into the living room. He slits her throat with his left hand, even though he's right-handed. And there's very little upward angle of the cut, even though he's six foot six and she's only four foot four. He then takes a towel from the bathroom and nails it up over the window on the door, takes her purse and her car keys, and then according to their theory, he had stepped in feces at some point in the house, which left that smudge in the kitchen floor. He gets into her car and he drives to Monica Bush's apartment. Somehow he manages to drive her car all the way across town with feces on his shoe, but doesn't get any feces inside the car. When he gets to Monica's apartment, he doesn't have a scratch on him. There's not a drop of blood on his clothing. They sent his shoes away for testing. There's not a drop of blood on his shoes. Detective Waller said they checked every single drain in that house, the sinks, the showers, everything, to see if someone had cleaned up on the scene, and no one had. So again, Ed would have had to have managed to do this without getting a single drop of blood on him. When he gets to Monica's house, she can't smell any feces on him. There's no feces on her carpet. There's no feces in the car. He then calls his brother and asks him to unlock the door so he can get back into the house, drives Elnora's car back to her trailer, and parks it at a place where she never parks it, back behind her trailer instead of beside it, and parks it really close to the trailer where it's difficult for a big person to get out of the car. On his way back, he was apparently jamming out to some rap music. Then he goes back into his house, calls Monica, and they talk on the phone. And then at 7.30 in the morning when Johnny Pryor gets home, Ed's outside in the garden helping his grandmother. And he then walks down to Johnny's house and discusses further with her how much he's going to charge to paint her house. That's the state's theory of the case. They never did present a motive, but they expected the jury to believe that Ed had this huge fight with Elnora, slit her throat, there's blood everywhere, there's semen on the comforter that isn't his, and somehow he managed to do that without leaving one single fingerprint inside the trailer. The crime scene investigators collected 200 hairs. None of those hairs matched Ed Eight's, so he didn't leave a single fingerprint, he didn't leave a single hair, he didn't leave any DNA evidence, and he managed to do all this without getting a single drop of blood on him or his shoes, without getting a single scratch on his body, without breaking a single fingernail, without leaving a single fingerprint in her car, without leaving any feces in her car, 
without leaving any hair in her car. Somehow he managed to plant hairs on Elnora's body that didn't belong to him or her. He pulled off the perfect crime, and he did so knowing that someone who was on the other end of that phone knew that he was in the trailer at the time of the murder. And I know as I explain all this to you, it sounds absolutely ridiculous that he was convicted. But when you really look at it, the reason that he was convicted is because his own attorneys threw the case away. They didn't do it intentionally, but they handed the state their case on a silver platter. I told you last week that Richard Ream, he is the FBI lab technician from Washington, D.C., who analyzed the scraping from Ed Shue to see if it was of human origin. I thought that he hadn't testified because he's not listed in the index, but when reading through Kelvin Ates' testimony, I found Richard Reams. What happened was Richard Ream was not available for this trial, but he had testified at the first trial. So Ed's attorneys had agreed to let the prosecution read his testimony in. And what that means is they put someone up on the witness stand pretending to be Richard Ream, and they play-acted it. They read right from the script from the first trial. In that testimony, which you'll find posted on the website, Richard Ream never said that that scraping was feces. He was asked if he smelled the sample, and he said that he had, and he thought it smelled like feces, but he never did any scientific testing to see if it indeed was feces. But Richard Ream tested three samples. He tested the scraping from the bottom of Ed's shoe. He tested a sample of known feces from the carpet in Elnora's room. This was not a stain. This was an actual chunk of feces. And he tested the stain on the pillowcase, the what looks like a shoe print on the pillowcase from the bedroom. So when he ran the test on the scraping on Ed's shoe, it reacted positively for human proteins. But he also ran tests on the sample to see if it tested positive for animal proteins. And it did. And he also ran a sample to see if it tested positive for plant proteins. And it did. So that sample tested positive to all three, human, animal, and plant. He tested the stain from the pillowcase and got the same result. It tested positive for human, animal, and plant. But here's the strange part. He tested the sample that was an actual chunk of feces from the room, and it did not react positively as human protein. So first of all, we have the validity of the test. The sample from the bedroom floor was basically given as a control, and it failed the test. We know that was feces that came out of a human, yet the test says it's not human. But the footprint on the pillowcase and the scraping from Ed's shoe said that they were human, but all three of them also tested positive for plant and animal protein. So the first question we have is, is this test reliable? Well, as it turns out, the FBI lab in Quantico is the only lab, or at least at that time, was the only lab in the world that could test for human proteins and feces. Richard Ream testified that this was the only time in his career he had ever testified regarding a feces test. So a good strategy on the defense's part would have been to attack this evidence before the trial even began. This was the only piece of physical evidence that tied Ed to that crime scene. And it didn't actually tie him to the crime scene. You have to speculate to put him there. But there was human feces at the crime scene, and there was supposedly human feces on his shoe. Therefore, they connected him and convinced the jury that he was on the crime scene that night. The defense may not have won this, but they should have challenged the validity of that test based on the results of the control test and the fact that a known human feces substance came back testing negative as human feces. But they didn't do that. 
They just let it in at both trials. But worse than that, probably the biggest mistake that the defense made is they accepted the fact that this was actually feces on his shoe. There was never any scientific testing done to prove that it was feces. Richard Ream never testified that it was feces. And during cross-examination, the defense dropped the ball and didn't ask the question that any competent defense attorney would have asked. And that is a direct question to the expert on the stand, can you tell me with 100% certainty that that was feces based on scientific testing? And the answer to that question would have had to have been no. A smell test is not evidence. They never even questioned the fact that it was feces. I believe that the biggest contributing factor to the conviction of Edward Eights was his own attorney's closing arguments. During closing arguments, both Tom McClain and Cliff Roberson repeatedly, over and over and over again, referred to the human feces found on Ed's shoe. They told the jury repeatedly that it was human feces on his shoe. And their strategy was to explain that maybe he picked it up when he stepped in there. Maybe he picked it up when he stepped in an open sewer line. That there are other explanations for the human feces on his shoe over and over and over again. Before the prosecution even got up for its final closing argument, Ed's own attorneys had convinced the jury that that was indeed human feces on his shoe. In the defense's closing arguments, I counted the phrase human fecal material 16 times. 16 times they confirmed to that jury that it was human fecal material. This was the linchpin of the state's case and they just handed it to them. And this wasn't the only thing. There were the candy wrappers found inside of Elnora's car. Based on what the defense had said, I had always assumed those were Jolly Rancher candy wrappers found in the car. But when I read through all the trial testimony, no one ever says that. Melody McKay is the one who collected the wrappers, and she says that they were peppermint wrappers, which is the candy that Elnora had in all of her candy dishes inside of the house. It was Ed's defense attorneys during their closing arguments that insinuated to the jury that they were Jolly Rancher wrappers. They didn't directly say it, but when you read the trial testimony, you see they're talking about Jolly Rancher wrappers, and they immediately start talking about the candy wrappers found in the car and trying to explain them away, when in fact they didn't need to be explained away because they were completely irrelevant to the case. Unless they think Ed ate a dozen peppermints on his way to Monica's apartment that he had taken from Elnora's trailer that still had peppermints in all of the candy dishes, then those wrappers are completely irrelevant. The fingerprint testing didn't come back to Ed Eights, but his own attorneys put in the jury's mind that those wrappers could have come from Ed. They did attempt to put a fight up regarding the towel. They pointed out the discrepancies in Huckel, Waller, and McKay's testimony about when they found the towel, the fact that they didn't document it, the fact that they didn't take any pictures of it. But I think what would have gone a long way to the jury was to bring a towel into that courtroom and demonstrate how ridiculous it would be for there to be a handprint in the middle of the towel. I want you to do something for me, or at least imagine yourself doing it. Take a towel and try to nail it up to a wall. You're nailing it up by the top corners. How in the hell would you possibly nail a towel up to the wall when you have your hand planted right smack dab in the middle of it? It's impossible. The towel would fold down over your hand. You would nail one corner up, and then you would hold up the other corner while you drove the nail in. 
There's no way that you can nail it up with your hand right in the middle of it. But the defense missed that too. And once the defense finished with their closing arguments, David Dobbs came up for the final half of the state's closing argument, and he had been given a green light by the defense to hammer away at this human fecal material on the bottom of Ed's shoe. So that's the answer to the question so many of you have been asking me. How did Ed possibly get convicted? The answer is, it was a fecal matter. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Don't forget that you can go on to iTunes and buy Truth and Justice the Music soundtrack, or you can go to truthandjusticemusic.com to purchase any songs or the entire album. Thank you to Merch Labs for creating our new apparel line. And don't forget, if you're interested in buying a t-shirt, a hoodie, or a tank top to help support the show, you can go to truthandjusticeapparel.com. And don't forget that the pre-order items, the Veritas Aquitas t-shirt and the Free Ed 8s t-shirt, those pre-orders have to be in by Wednesday the 17th. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Daniel Schaefer for editing the podcast. I want to thank today's sponsors, 4Athletics, Movement Watches, and Blue Apron for funding today's show. And a big thank you to all of you who have pledged monthly donations on our Patreon page to help continue to support the program and help us expand and hopefully get out that second episode here within a month or two. If you're interested in pledging a donation on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. And for all of you that have sent in emails with thoughts, theories, and ideas, I want to thank you for your engagement and a big thanks to all of you for your support. Remember, you can stay in touch with me by sending me emails to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.